podcast. I'm very excited to have you on. I'm excited to be here. Here we go. <laughs> yes, sir. So to anyone listening, a little bit of uh, context, Elias is, is a fir- personal friend, also a personal friend of Jan Gus. We rely a lot on his uh, insight and uh, intellect. And uh, we consult with you, Elias, a lot. And we really appreciate everything that you've contributed to us. And we've met at a recent conference. We've reunited at a recent conference, which you gave a beautiful talk at, which is called RadFest. Do you want to explain a little bit what RadFest is? It's pretty interesting. Yeah. So RadFest is kind of people who are into this idea of radical longevity. So most people think like longevity is extending the health span, like maybe, you know, extending health span. So for those who are mm-hmm. familiar with the idea of lifespan and health span, and first off, thanks for having me. I don't think I said that yet. <laughs> 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 but uh, it's great to be here. So for those of you not familiar with this idea that, you know, we've, we started living longer, right? So humanity, people used to live to like be 45. That used to be mm-hmm. kind of like a lifespan. Now people live well beyond 45, but our health starts declining so severely from 45 to 70 that people are starting to point out the fact like, well, who cares then? Like if your health mm-hmm. is just a inevitable decline into organ failure and cellular dysfunction and, you know, Alzheimer's, like that's probably not a good thing to just extend Mm -hmm. lifespan. So now the goal has become, let's extend health span. So let's say, okay, you know, you at 45, you know, that's, if we call that midlife, let's live to 90, but be healthy as possible the entire way. Yeah. It's almost like the, um, you know the monster has has risen and 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 has eliminated the creator, right? Um, the allopathic medicine, conventional medicine, basically has concentrated on preventing people from dying. To, right. to, to and was is and is successful yes. to an extent where the other part of it, which is quality of life or health span, as we call it, has kind of fallen to the waste side. Well, I don't. I just think maybe you know it wasn't really our. We weren't thinking. You know, mm-hmm. I think what's really amazing, and we'll probably get into this, we get into science, but, <laughs> you know, science sometimes just does things because it's like, is this possible, right? So it's mm-hmm. kind of like the first step is, is it possible to get people to live beyond 45? Well, now we prove it. Okay, yeah, it's possible. People can mm-hmm. live over 100, you know, and you, I mean, you can go back to some ancient stories that suggest that this was not uncommon, but, you know, looking in the last, say, 500 years, people were yeah. not living to over 100, you know, as often as they are today. So now we're like, okay, we can live people, get people to live beyond 100. But now let's see if we can, you know, keep them healthy the entire time. But what is interesting about the group at RadFest is that's not near enough for them. <laughs> They're not like, they're, they're like a hundred. Ah, you guys are, you know, you guys are worsies. I want to live uh-huh. to a thousand. I want to exactly. live to like, I don't even want to die. I want to become an immortal. Uh-huh. And and that I think is, it's a mix that, that has a mixed response amongst people, which is kind mm-hmm. of interesting if you think about it, right? Because you think, well, wouldn't immortality be a human desire? But it appears that it's not. Like if you, if you really suggest to most people or ask them, would you like to be immortal? Yeah, because right? the biggest fear is supposed to be death. But if you really think about it, or you just ask people generally, their initial response is like, "No, they don't want it. They don't want to live five hundred years." I agree. Uh, well, I think this is a big topic, and and I do want to cover it. But first, like before we jump into into the philosophy or to the um, mental play of of like what right, happens the, when... the mental states of an immortal. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm working uh... on that talk, right? Like the mindset <laughs> of an immortal. That's actually one of my next talks. That's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, but within that concept, in order to even uh, affect our health 
on a dramatic scale right now. We have to be our own experiment. And this is something that you've been preaching for a long time. You gave a talk yes. at Radfest about uh, and the N equals one concept in yes. citizen science, science as a whole. And I would love to kind of start a conversation there since in order to affect your health, you have to be your own science project. How would you uh, define citizen science or, or that N equals one? Right. Perfect. So, and maybe I'll just define N equals one first, because yeah. that's kind of the, the, the thesis of the whole thing. And for those of you, in case you're not familiar with this idea, it's N refers to the number of participants in a clinical study. So if you have mm -hmm. an N of 1000 people in a study, that means there was a thousand people that have participated. But as I often like to say, a population is not a person. Right? Yeah. So everybody listening to this is a person. So even though a good study could have had a thousand people and they said it was really efficacious when they took, when they did cold plunging. So of a thousand people, they found, you know, the majority of them had improved parasympathetic activation by cold plunging. So you would say, well, that's great. I should start cold plunging. But then mm -hmm. you start cold plunging and you just find that it's destroying your nervous system, right? Because you're an N of one, you're a person, you're not a population, you're an yeah. individual. And so the future, and, and this is what my talk was about, the, I believe that the future of health and wellness is precise, personalized, and preventative. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of the thesis of my talk. And how do you get that is, you know, we you have to narrow in on that bioindividuality. And in the future, we'll have more tools for us to maybe do this en masse. But right now, you kind of have to be your own citizen scientist if you want to apply these principles. Yeah, and, and I think uh, what you're alluding to, that in the future, the ability to take, you know, widely available technology and kind of have have the reads on that being individualized to you is something that we're still in the in the process of but what i love is that we're starting to see the technology at least to pro to, to provide the data to us yes. so how would you parcel out these the the quantification of of health what are some of the uh points that you like to view so yeah, it's a, again, perfect question. And what I presented at RadFest was like mm -hmm. the, what I call the five factors of health. So these are five things that anybody can test. You don't need to wait for the future to make this possibility. You can just right now, all of the tests are available essentially for home or self-testing. Mm -hmm. um, the first one is very important, of course, which is genetics. So, you know, you can get a genetic test rather easily today. The thing to keep in mind, I think, when you're talking about genetic testing is twofold. First is privacy. You know, I think some people had some real eye-opening experiences around yeah. when the early genetic tests came out, I refused to do them. And everybody was like, well, why not? You're such a self-quantified guy. Why would you not do 23andMe? And I said, well, you know, I looked a bit of the agreement and I said, our genetic data is going to be an extreme, it's an extremely sensitive thing to share. Yes, right? your genome. And so I was skeptical that the early companies in this space were going to respect my privacy. And I was very justified by what happened later on that that data now has been sold. Yeah. Um, so I was going to scare anybody who's done those tests. But, you know, a lot of the human genome data that was from some of these early companies, including 23andMe, has been essentially sold to the highest bidders who can now do with that whatever they want. So there's a number of genetic companies today that are based around privacy mm -hmm. and controlling your own that data. And again, even then, I guess you could even question that, you know, who knows, they could be acquired by another company in the future, who knows. But, they can also be hacked. I mean, it's yeah. it's very simple to to access that data 
if it's out there on a on a cloud. Yeah, right. Or even being sent to you via an email, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so you know, or through your dashboard that you might get. So, yeah. you know, that's that's the the caveats here. So, you know, I, I like to try to give people the good and the bad of everything so that they, they can get the full picture. So privacy. And then the other thing is the interpretation of your genetic data, because what how genetic data is interpreted, you know, we're constantly defining new ways of how to interpret this data so that, you know, a SNP that you know, predisposes you, for example, to alcohol dependency, you know, yeah. you know, that's something that, but, but the interesting thing is you could have that gene, that predisposition, but this is not your destiny. And I think mm -hmm. this is the big, this is one of the big differences in medicine in the last even 20 years is we used to think your genes were your destiny. And so now we're realizing, well, that you may have a predisposition towards a genetic expression, but does it get expressed? You could live your entire life and not never have that gene expressed. Yeah. Uh, so that's epigenetics and that's a rapidly growing field where we're realizing that, you know, the genes may or may not be expressed based upon environmental inputs. And so genetics, though, an important test. So I'll keep going unless you want to add anything to genetics. No, I mean, just to simplify it, I always think of um, what can we look around in, in nature and understand that ability of our genes either to be expressed on or not expressed and we can think of even like uh you know uh bunnies or hairs that turn their turn white when the temperatures get cold enough i mean like if we take this bunny and we put it in a in a cage no offense to anyone that it uh triggers them but uh put it in a cage in our house and it's always uh temperature controlled and stuff this this hair can live their entire life without knowing that they have a trait that makes them white when you know, X amount of parameters are being, are being, you know, right. they're being exposed in the population. So, or like a piano, it can play a lot of notes, but it, it is up to the, whatever, to the notes. The to, pianist, to, the pianist yeah. to actually hit the keys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so you just, just to give a general idea of what it means to have, you know, that full genetic, you Potential. know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Potential and what we do with it. Yeah, yeah. because it's potential versus expression, right? Mm -hmm. So like the potential may be there, but you may never get expressed, right? Yeah, what and... genes get turned on and off are based on those environmental inputs. So, but it's important to know what they are because, you know, for example, you know, you may find, and I found out through this, not through genes, but just through a lot of trial and error, for example, that I just mm -hmm. don't metabolize carbs. Mm -hmm. And so I wish I had had like a, some sort of a genetic marker, if there had been something very early on, you know, cause I spent like 20 years trying to be vegetarian, <laughs> which was a carb, carb heavy diet before yeah. I realized I needed to go full keto. I wish somebody had told me, you know what I mean? Cause uh -huh. I wish there was a tool, you know, available to me when I was, you know, a personal trainer and an athlete that I could have just looked at a test and been like, oh no, you don't metabolize carbs, you know, and it doesn't have to be a genetic test. We can talk about some of the, we'll talk about some of the other tests that you can do. So the, the the second factor I like to talk about, and this is the one that's completely under recognized in the you know biohacking, longevity, um, health and wellness space, and that's psychometrics. Mm -hmm. That's the and for those psychometrics is essentially the modality that quantifies psychology. So psychology, you know, everybody knows what psychology is, I would imagine, but yeah. it's to many people, it feels nebulous, right? Like you, you lie on a couch and somebody like, well, what was your childhood like? You know, and you talk yeah. about that or what, what did you dream last night? Right. I mean, those things are, and then how is that interpreted by the psychologist? Right. So that's, yeah. So what happened was, is, you know, psychology has been around for, you know, various forms of well over a hundred and hundred years. And I think 
people in that time started, some hardcore scientists said, well, how could we quantify these things into mm -hmm. from nebulous into something that are traits that we could measure more clear with, with greater clarity? And so they came up with a number of different psychometric tools. The most validated one is called the Big Five Ocean, yeah. which we don't have to go into all the details, but I'll just take as an example. Most people are familiar with the idea of extroversion versus introversion, right? So that's, those are not like extreme polarities. They're extreme polarities, but they're on a spectrum. Yeah. So you don't have to be a extrovert or an introvert. You could be moderately extroverted. And if you're moderately extroverted, that means you're also comfortable being alone, but you're okay, you know, being in groups, but maybe at a certain point, you're kind of like this person who's like, well, you had a party, but you just had enough, right? Like, mm -hmm. you're just like, I've had enough and I, I need to get out of here because I've just been around people too long. Yeah. Right? But if you're an extreme extrovert, you you'll have a podcast. This... No, yeah, you... <laughs> that's right. You'll, you'll be on podcast. You'll be a speaker, <laughs> you know, like I'm an, I'm, I, I score on the very high on extroversion, right? So for mm -hmm. me, the pandemic, for example, was like a form of hell, like Zoom, yeah. Zoom relationships exclusively was like, like the seventh layer of hell for mm -hmm. me because I need to be around people. I draw, one of the other ways to explain extroversion versus introverts is extroverts gain energy from being around people whereas introverts drain energy from being around people. So if you're an introvert, you could go into a party. You can you can still go to a party as an introvert, but after a certain period of time, that energy level has just drained you. And that's when you're like, I got to get out of here, right? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with this. These are not good or bad traits. They're just traits. Yeah. And you know what? Sometimes being an introvert is really good because if you say, coming back to scientists, a scientist who works in a lab analyzing, doing experiments, maybe spending a lot of time alone. Yeah. An extreme introvert, they will not be uh, a great lab scientist because they will be in the lab by themselves and they will be losing energy by being alone in the lab. Whereas an introvert will be really happy and be doing great experiments. So it's not about saying this is better than that. It's about recognizing that if my orientation is more towards this, then this is the best use of my consciousness, my energy, better career choices. And even in relationships, you know, if you end up being in a relationship where your spouse is more introverted or extroverted is you, and you can have the conversation, but look, well, look, I understand I'm going to have a lot of fun at this party if we stay the whole night, but you're, you're going to like lose it at about like 11 o'clock and you need to come to some type of like healthy compromise for mm -hmm. to respect your spouse. So these, this is really important to talk about, but I feel like it's a piece of health that is not acknowledged because it's maybe a bit more around mental health or psychological health. You could even say psycho-spiritual health, um, yeah. but it's, it's not often talked about in a quantifiable way. And so I think this is really important. So I, I always include psychometrics and I, I spent a lot of time personally studying psychometrics. I got certified in a number of different tools. Yeah. And when we conduct any type of hiring or doing like a COBA test or any type of psychometrics that are going to help us then interact with that person or assign that person to a specific role. So I agree with you that obviously it's, it goes a little bit beyond introversion or extroversion, but I agree with you that this is definitely something that we all have an innate sense of what makes us happy or not. As far as like specific actions that we're doing, uh, if we like to eat, I don't know, cake after dinner, it can, it can, you know, we can be happier, more or less, but not, not a lot of people know to classify their psychometrics in a way which, which would then translate to 
overall happiness or you know promote health and longevity so i i agree with you there okay so if anyone is interested in that i really encourage them to to just conduct more reading and and, and studying into that yeah area. there's actually a website i would recommend for anybody who does want to understand psychometrics because they mm -hmm. give you free tests on their website for personal use it's called truity Maybe I can give it to you. I don't know if you do show notes, you could put it yeah. in show notes if you want. And you could just go to the site and then you can do the big five ocean. They have like all of these different psychometric tests that you can self-administer. And what I really like about psychometric testing like this is, is what we like to say in the industry is psychometricians is this is a message from you to you. <laughs> so this is not like me as a psychometrician telling you how it is. This is from you to you. You do the test, you self-analyze, and you're kind of doing it for yourself. Although some of the really, what I think are some of the most effective psychometric tests is when we do what are called 360s. So it's like you would do the test. Then as an associate of yours, I would do the test talking about you. And then we get your spouse, we get your coworkers, we get your family. So we get a full 360 and then we aggregate all of those scores. And that probably is the best way to get a picture of what your true psychometrics are. Because sometimes people are really bad at self-assessment and self-reporting yeah. when it comes to these things. So so just that's that's enough on psychometrics. We could go down, we could do a whole podcast. On, sure. We could do a whole series of podcasts just on psychometrics. To be, to be frank, my favorite talk that you gave is uh, on decision-making and you went very deeply into psychometrics there. Right. I, I was, you know, I was blown away by that lecture. Yeah, well, um, thank you. Okay, so... Psychometrics is the second one. What's the third one? So genetics, psychometrics. The third one uh, that I like to think about is microbiome. And the reason I include this as its own category is not because we have it figured out now, but because mm -hmm. I think in the future, this will become a game changer for human health once we get this dialed in. Dialed in. Right now, you know, we're looking here, probably most people listening probably heard about the microbiome, but what we don't realize is the microbiome is extremely complicated. It's not just what's in your gut, as you would well know, it's yeah. on your skin, it's in your mouth, it's in your, you know, your ears, your nose, your eyes, like this, you know, we are a multitude of organisms, organisms. and yeah. bacteria and cells that are, you know, kind of walking around thinking, you know, with this person, <laughs> but we actually are multitude. And so, yeah. you know, if we were to really understand the microbiome, I think we would probably have way more effective treatments for disease, you know, cause I'm yeah. sure people have heard some of the anecdotal stories of people with severe health conditions and had exhausted every form of treatment and a single series of, for example, fecal transplants completely yeah. cured of like severe things, like even things like, you know, Lyme and MS and things that people have been struggling with for decades. I mean, uh, recently, recently there was a study where they had fecal transplants of top athletes into rats and those rats performed extremely well. So <laughs> they became super rats. <laughs> really? I, didn't, I didn't see that study, but I believe yeah. it. But that's, yeah. I mean, because if you've optimized everything else, that makes sense because your microbiome then becomes that optimized because of all these other factors. And again, there's a lot of people who are specialists on this. I'm sure maybe you even had some on the podcast. Yeah. You know, uh, so so I won't go too deep down that that path, but I do believe that microbiome testing is going to be a game changer once we get it dialed in. But right now it's still in the relatively early stages. So when people are claiming, just my two cents on this, is when people are claiming that they that they got a microbiome test that solves everything or answers your questions, be skeptical. Be a skeptical scientist about that yeah. because it's still early stage. So genetics, psychometrics, microbiome. And then the, the fourth one 
very one that probably most people think of is biochemical testing. Mm -hmm. So this is getting your blood work, right? You go to your doctor, what do they do? You know, they have somebody come, you know, they get, they have the, the vampire that comes and drains your blood, <laughs> uh, you know, called a phlebotomist. And uh, they send that off to the lab and then you get this big report, right? And so what's really amazing now is, you know, you can, you can actually even call different companies and they'll send the phlebotomist to your house now, do the blood draw and send it off to the lab, you know, mm -hmm. so you can either go get this done at your doctor. You can also buy different tests online where you go to, you know, uh, a lab facility and they do your blood draw. I mean, the amount of biochemical analysis that can be done from your blood, but this doesn't even have to be just blood. It could be blood, it could be urine, it could be saliva, right? So there's a lot of different ways we could measure your biochemical data. And this is something that, like I said, in the past, it used to only be done, you know, by your doctor when you went to go see them. But now, you know, all sorts of urine tests are available at home. You know, they can send you the test for your saliva, not just for genetics, but for cortisol levels, for example, or other things and spit into the tube. They send it to the lab. So all those different things in the biochemical analysis. I mean, recently, the, I mean, not recently, I actually had done it, I think a year and a half ago, but there is a blood test that to measure to tell you if you have any type of cancer or most type of cancers yes. active in your body. So I think it's like a, it's like a 3D type of expansion, right? Also what we can decipher from blood work, it increases, but also how we can kind of bypass just having to, you know, play vampire and prick someone to get the data that also expands. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, wearables in a second, but yeah. So, so yeah, the, so the biochemical, yeah. And actually that thing about cancer detection, early cancer detection is quite exciting because there's a lot of companies coming into that space. And now, you know, for those you're not familiar with this, I mean, one of the big reasons cancer is such a, a source of fear, right? And people like yeah. say, you go to your doctor and they come back and it's like, oh, you got the big C, you know, people lose their mind. But that's because typically the cancer screening tools we have now are catching people in like stage three, stage four, right? So by, you have to have built up, like sometimes it's even like a physical tumor is big enough that now we see it on an x-ray, like they didn't yeah. even catch it. So it's like you physically see, holy smokes, well, I, I got this <laughs> lump here. What the hell is this thing? Oh, it's a tumor, right? Uh, not a tumor, uh, but it's... <laughs> It's actually something that has grown to that size. But if you can now do these blood biopsies and they can catch your cancer at like a stage one, your chances of survival are 90%, right? Mm -hmm. 95%. Whereas you catch at stage four, your chances of survival go down sometimes in some of these cancers to like 10 or 20%. So this is why cancer is such a scary thing, you know? Yeah. But if we could catch cancers now at stage one, which a lot of tests are coming out that can do that, then, you know, we were, that's, that's the preventative that is off yes. that, right? Like, let's talk about prevention. Let's not wait until people have cancer. Let's go upstream. And then if you catch it stage one, it's not just about taking the drug, but it's about looking at your lifestyle changes that exactly, you need to make yeah. so you don't create an environment in your body where cancer can thrive. Yeah. Yeah, to, to your point, most people are going to die with cancer and not from yes. cancer. Yes. Cancer is mostly a problem when it goes outside of the organ it originally, it originates from. So yeah, this is definitely, it's going to be like a two-pronged monster here, right? Like one, right. one area is going to be more people are going to 
be able to, to treat cancer at its early stages, but there, we're going to have a lot more people walking around scared because they, they got diagnosed with cancer, right? Right. Yeah. So if you do get one of these new cutting edge cancer, you know, the idea <laughs> is to catch it early. So uh -huh. uh, caveat there. And then of course, the fifth one, the thing that I'm probably best known for is biometrics. Mm -hmm. So this is, you know, all of your wearables. This is over the last five years have become rather ubiquitous. Most people have some experience of the wearable, whether it's an Apple Watch or the Samsung Watch or a, a Whoop or an Aura Ring or, you know, some other tool that even like a, even a pulse oximeter on their finger, mm -hmm. which everybody was using during COVID because we discovered that, you know, if you're uh, as people suddenly, I used to talk about SPO2, you know, five years ago, people would mm -hmm. think, what's that? What's SPO2? During COVID, like everybody knows what SPO2 is now, right? If your SPO2 drops below 90%, you run to the hospital now, uh -huh. you know, because they everybody got those pulse oximeters at home, right? To, to monitor these levels. So there's a whole bunch of biometrics that we can monitor through wearables uh, and now even moving to ambient technology. And uh, these are going to become very, very, I think, important because, you know, as people want to conduct their own citizen science experiments, you need to kind of dial in all five of these factors. So you can do all yeah. of these different tests. The reason I like biometrics so much is because they're something you can measure day by day change. So your genetics don't change very much, right? Or don't change at all. <laughs> and then your psychometrics are not supposed to change very much over your lifetime. Yeah, they're relatively stable. Your microbiome is also... I put my five from like the least changing to the most changing, right? If you, if you saw my presentation, right? So yeah. genetics don't change, biometrics change the most, biochemical. So if you get your blood labs done every three months, that's probably the highest cadence I've ever, of any physician I've ever asked, like how a professional, like how is the most often you would change, you would get your blood drawn to look at a change on a, on a blood marker. Yeah. It's about three months, but biometrics change day by day, hour by hour. So it's mm -hmm. a real, it's a way if you really want to dial in tight to a protocol and conduct your own science experiment, you know, as a citizen scientist on yourself, biometrics are a great tool because I could take a sleep. I know my baseline sleep data based upon my wearable of choice. doesn't matter. I don't care what it is. Mm -hmm. And then I take a sleep supplement or, and then I can see, well, did the supplement work? You know, did it change my baseline data? Not, of course, not the first night, but over a period of time, you know, yeah. or, or you can see some, like, I mean, I've seen some pretty amazing biometric changes from different things I've tested over the years, things that just activate your parasympathetic nervous system very rapidly. Um, yeah. And, you know, so you can see that, hey, I was not doing good. I went, I, an example I gave actually in my talk at Radfest was I went and I could see my, I was in, I was using my whoop for this particular one. I said I was in green, I was in green and then I went to yellow and then I had two days in the red. So my HRV, my recovery score was going down. That was a sign like, oh, now I could potentially be at risk of getting sick. So the next day, I'm not going to go to the gym and try to set a personal record of lifting the most weight, or I'm not going to push my body. I'm going to go into a recovery day. So what do I do? I went and got an, an immune boosting IV. I went and did, um, you know, like I have like those compression legs, you know, foam rolling. I did all these things to sort of recover my nervous system. And lo and behold, boom, my recovery score the next day was like a 95. Yeah. So that's how you dial it in, you know, to, to essentially monitor yourself and to decide what are the things you need to do each and every day to optimize your recovery and your general health. Yeah, especially, you know, if we talk about skin health and how we translate it, obviously we can talk about continuous glucose monitoring, our relationship with glucose. 
Right. And then, and then, you know, how we can relate the, that data to what we ate at that time of day and kind of ma making yes. sure that we adjust our diet. As an anecdote, the reason is because uh, glucose is associated with a, a lot of things that are detrimental to, to the health. But one of the things that are the, maybe the most crucial as far as our skin is concerned is glycation. We eat glucose, we get glycation end products, and these glycation end products basically make our skin, our collagen in our skin less supple, it's, it, our skin as a whole, create wrinkles, etc. So if I should scare someone into wearing a blood glucose monitor, which was interesting because until like, I'd say five years ago, if you had one on your hand, it was screaming, hi, I am diabetic, right? Yes. And now yeah. it's maybe the opposite. It's like, hi, I am a person that is interested in like peak performance or something yes. like that. Well, I mean, it is, it is, I, I talked about this and I thought it was very interesting as someone who was in the wearable space. So I used to be talking about like biometrics, but I've actually had to change it to what I call now biosensors mm -hmm. because a continuous glucose monitor tip is actually doing a biochemical analysis on the body. So that's the next phase of, of wearables is actually moving from just biometrics, which are predominantly driven by, you know, for example, like ECG, electrical signals from the heart, electrocardiograms, or PPG signals using light to shine through the skin and extracting data from that. But now we're moving towards a stage where we're going to actually have these biosensors, continuous glucose monitors being the, the most ubiquitous example today, yeah. where you put that on your body and now you can monitor. It has a little interstitial uh, nodule that goes into the skin for those people not familiar with the CGM. And so it does have to penetrate the skin and, and then it measures uh, through the fluid, you know, here's what your glucose levels are in the blood. And uh, they're out working now on non-invasive continuous mm -hmm. glucose monitors that don't even need to pierce the skin. But what's really interesting is that on the continuous glucose monitor, I mean, I don't think people should be scared into getting involved in. It doesn't mean you're diabetic. It's really good to do because I'm a fan of the work of Dr. Robert Lustig and yeah. colleagues that talk about that every single disease is downstream of metabolic dysfunction. Mm -hmm. And and I think this is true. I think the only thing that's upstream of metabolic dysfunction, and we talked about this briefly just before we started recording, is is mental health. Yeah. Right. Is that like the, like, of course, the foundation of everything from a health standpoint is the mental health. But, you know, when you're, when you develop metabolic dysfunction, you're essentially at risk for every possible disease and disorder you could develop. So knowing where you land in CGM, where your glucose levels are and your insulin response levels and your metabolic health is extremely important. And, and unfortunately to say this, 90% of Americans are considered to be metabolically dysfunctional today. I wanted to take a quick break for this episode to chat with you about our Young Goose skincare product and our special offer for our podcast listeners. Our products are the world's first biohacking skincare products. And what they aim to do is to reboot uh, your skin cells to a youthful state so they can correct the cellular damage that is accumulated over time. Our favorite products and the one that we recommend everyone to start with are is our care concentrated moisturizer that can be used as both a day and a night cream. What this product is really specially delivering to the skin is our NAD precursors that are nano-sized and lipolized. They are both NR and NMN. And what they aim to do is to fuel the repair processes that our skin engages in by activating also our sirtuins, which are our anti-aging genes or our longevity genes that are responsible for DNA repair and basically repairing who we are 
really as human beings. In order to do that in a, the most effective way, we combine it with our enhanced resveratrol, which is fermented resveratrol that allows resveratrol to be 50 times more bioavailable in the skin and actually non-toxic because most people don't know that resveratrol is actually toxic for the skin since the skin doesn't have the enzyme to break it down like our gut does. So by fermenting the the resveratrol and introducing the enzymes in the fermentation process, we can obviously make it non-toxic and 50 times more bioavailable. And Care Concentrated Moisturizer also has 10 more active ingredients that support those processes, such as CoQ10, PQQ, two forms of vitamin C, and even turmeric and B vitamins. This is the first product we recommend. The second is eye care, which is a version of care specifically for the eyes. It also contains our NAD precursors and also contains very, very advanced peptides, our proprietary complex that includes GHKCU, a copper peptide that is very famous for its anti-aging abilities. The third product we recommend is our ProCare Serum. And that is a very special serum because it interacts with the mTOR pathway, which is a pathway that is very famous for its ability to affect how we age. So this product does a few things, but really what it does, it eliminates senescent cells, which are cells that harm our skin because our skin couldn't clear them very well. So it eliminates those, regenerates the skin. It stimulates the mitochondria with lilac uh, cell culture extract. And it also has a very strong and effective form of vitamin C that is well known to help the skin regenerate itself. Combining these three products by first applying ProCare, then eye care, and then care will give you the best results you've ever experienced for your skin and that we guarantee. If you would like to try these products, you can head over to younggoose.com to our website. And when checking out, please use the promo code PODCAST20 in all capital letters in order to get 20% off your first purchase. Again, head over to younggoose.com and use promo code PODCAST20 in all capitals for 20% off your first purchase. And now let's get back to the podcast. But Elias, I will actually connect between the two things that you just said. And, and that's something actually I really want to talk to you about specifically, because first of all, we know that stress affects metabolic health. It affects our relationship with glucose. It affects cortisol specifically. You know, it can spike blood sugar levels. It can make us less sensitive to insulin, which is kind of saying the same thing. But also, right. you know, is our mental health can be affected from the amount of stress or the amount of emotional currency we give those metrics. What, what we are starting to see, I think in the last, I don't know, 10 years for sure, but in the last few years, even more stark is people who are developing a type of eating disorder that is associated with paying too much attention to what they're eating, too much attention to their biometrics. And do you feel like we're starting to develop a type of um, unhealthy re- or some of us unhealthy relationship with the information that over over information? Yeah, this is obviously a set, obviously been a, a delicate topic for me to talk about is uh, is a health advocate. Yeah. is because the extreme end of being uh, health conscious is something called orthorexia. I think mm-hmm. that's how you pronounce it, right? So it's like mm-hmm. the hyper 
vigilance, right? So it's 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 like almost like anorexia around food, but it's kind of around all of these things, right? Like you just become hyper vigilant and you can't do anything. Like I can't, I can't have an ounce of like the tiniest little sh- bit of a brownie, you know, like it's gonna yeah. break my diet, you know, or I can't go a single day without doing my 10 minute meditation. So you're stressing mm-hmm. about your meditation. Like that's not how it's supposed to work, people. You yeah. know, so you can go too extreme down that path. And the reason I don't like to talk about this much is because people will use that as a way to discard the fact that, like, well, I don't want to do that, so I'm not even going to try. And it's like, Mm -hmm. no, 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 no. Like, you need to be concerned about your health. You need to be actively a participant in modulating your own health. You need to become a citizen scientist and start testing on yourself to optimize yourself because nobody else will. But yes, on the extreme side, there are some people that get too intense about this and in all things you know as the as the buddha said you know the middle path you know in yeah. all things right so there's there's a balance to be had you know and and one of the things i like to say on this just just before we move on is the idea that if you are anti-fragile if you are a healthy individual who's resilient you can go out and have that seed oil meal with the big brownie at the end and drink and get wasted drunk if you want and you're going to recover, right? Because you are optimized. So yeah. you don't need to be afraid of that. I mean, that's part of being anti-fragile. Being anti-fragile is you can input anything at me and I'm adaptable, right? I'm an adaptable, responsive, powerful being, and I can take on whatever you throw at me. I think it's also being being anti-fragile with your habits, right? I mean, yes. it's, uh, and you are the my guru of habits. <laughs> But really, uh, if you trust, if you have a self self trust, you know, you trust yourself that that whatever one uh, day of uh, of of you know picking out or whatever you, you you're doing there is not going to break your your mental capacity to to hold on to your habits and and right. kind of maintain a healthy lifestyle overall. But I do feel that that I do meet a lot of people that are on a very thin edge between wanting to live forever and wanting to not live another day, right? It's it's yes. kind of a, how do we relate longevity and mental health? How, how do we approach this? Uh, I mean, this, this has become, this has become the thing, this is going to be like my next few talks that I, the next talks that I'm working on right now is exactly mm-hmm. on this point, because I think we've hit a critical mass stage here. And for those of you who didn't read recently, there was a, a something that was just published last month in the Lancet journal, uh, a science journal, for those of you who aren't familiar mm-hmm. with it, that said that we went from about 8.6% of Americans self-reporting as being in depression to almost 30% during the pandemic as of 2021. So mm-hmm. we tripled the amount of people that were depressed in two years. Yeah. And that's an astoundingly scary statistic. And of course, the vast majority of them were young people. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of women, I think. But but it, this was across all genders, all spectrums, all age groups, all uh, nationalities across mm-hmm. the board. We saw a massive increase in depression and anxiety. And we're seeing this, you know, I'm sure you can, everybody listening to this, probably themselves faced moments of anxiety and depression in the Mm -hmm. last few years. And this is not just a pandemic-related issue. This is related to, I think, uh, E.O. Wilson um, said it best. He says, we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. Mm -hmm. 
And these three things combined is not, it's like too much. It's just too much for us to cope with, right? Because our emotions are still hunter-gatherer emotions, which I'm sure many people have heard, you know, and we, I don't even need to talk about that. Yeah. But our brains haven't changed in hundreds of thousands of years in terms of how they operate, right? So mm -hmm. you know, the things about like the amygdala and, you know, being hypervigilant for threats and all of this. And then the institutions that are serving us, you know, are medieval, right? So, yeah. you know, things like the banking and, and the whole way the educational system and the way all these things are kind of designed government. I've been designed and they're kind of haven't changed in, in, you know, a thousand years and mm -hmm. not changed enough, I guess you could say. And then all of a sudden, boom, in the last 20 years, we developed godlike technology. Correct. Yeah. So how do you deal with this? Right. Like yeah. you, you, you have a pretty modern humanity has a pretty intense challenge that we're facing. And I think the first casualty of this challenge is the collective mental health of the planet. So we need to really talk about this. Yeah, and and the question is, so as as you mentioned, we we see two things. We see, you know, people or brains that are, you know, designed to deal with a world that is pretty much the biological world or the physical world, right? right. And now what we are what what we are dealing with is a technology that is built predominantly to piggyback on that. It's not a technology that communicates in 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 uh, physical or biological terms. It activates those with artificial artificial mechanisms. Piggybacking. It's actually on... hacking. It's actually hacking directly. Uh, Tristan Harris. Uh, yes, and exactly. I would encourage you to go look this up. Work out, look, I mean, if anyone saw this, uh, the social dilemma, Tristan Harris in the Center of Humane Technology he calls it the race to the bottom of the brainstem. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very, a very appropriate representation of what's actually going on, right? So we started with, sorry to interrupt you, but, but go ahead no, and finish your thought. So, so we started with like, you know, Facebook and Twitter, and then, you know, Instagram was sort of the next thing. And so what I mean, what he means about the race to the bottom of the brainstem is like, now we're at like TikTok stage, right? So TikTok mm -hmm. is like triggering the most basic neurological responses that humans could possibly respond to like hyper fast, overwhelmingly intense data coming in at a very rapid pace. So like literally your it bypasses all of your conscious ability to to navigate, right? The forebrain, you know, the thoughtful processing of the of the brain is complete disengaged from that. It's just mm -hmm. you're just going straight to the bottom of the brainstem. You're directly and and all of this politicization of everything. You know, it's mm -hmm. all about triggering the amygdala. It's just like an amygdala hijack here, an amygdala hijack there. Every news article headline is just another amygdala hijack for whatever side or tribe you belong to. Yeah, it's know? almost like everything that is coming at you is talking is basically saying the other tribe is coming to get you, or the yes. tiger is coming to get you, or yes. whatever that is. Exactly. But aside from so, for me, the only thing I would know how to deal with it is uh, maybe mindfulness practices and very intense exercise. These are the only two things that I could think of right. that help me as a human deal with this type of artificial world that is targeting the race for the brainstem. But what do you see? Like, what are some of the things that you think will develop in the future to, well, I think to 800 years old, but happy <laughs> doing it, right? Right. Well, I think the number one thing, if you want to think like an immortal, and this is, I guess, a preview of what I'm going to talk about, but mm -hmm. I think to to think like an immortal, you got to live a life deserving of an of immortality, right? So mm -hmm. we have a very rich tradition of what this means. This is essentially to be a mythic figure, 
This is to become in your own life. You, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever's listening to this, regardless of what's in your environment, you are the hero or the angel in somebody's story, but mm -hmm. not just your own. And this is the key point. It's not just your story either. Who are you in the story of others around you? Are you a source? Are you the, are you the villain? Right. I mean, in some cases, probably some people in my life, I've lived long enough now. I probably have some people might've seen me as the villain for a moment, but, yeah. got it. but, but you need to live a story that feels like you are part of some sort of grander purpose. And this is mm -hmm. the biggest, this is to me, one of the key things that we've lost because everybody used to believe that that was sort of the goal and in some capacity, right? To, to live that. And it doesn't have to be this big, complicated hero's journey where you're overcoming, you know, the, the, the greatest demons. Your demon in the cave could be getting to the gym. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's the thing. Maybe that's the demon you have to slay. It could be studying, like reading a book. That could be the demon, the, the, the procrastination, the demon of procrastination on TikTok. Slay that demon and read the book and get smarter. Like that's maybe the demon you have to face, right? Or the, the dragon in the lair. So what I mean by this is that if you start looking at your own life in a way that's more epic, because... Mm -hmm. You know, even though you don't, you don't have to be in the world being a huge public figure, you know, you could be the angel to your grandmother, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's an epic choice to be the person who's there, who's their guardian angel for them. That can be in your family. That can be amongst your friends. That could be, you know, it, it can be, it can, the small acts don't always just look at them as being small. I think that's an yeah. important thing to differentiate now, because I think what has happened with all of this information coming in is we all feel small and insignificant. Mm -hmm. and, and you need to not look at yourself through that lens. I think it's a dangerous way to look at your own life. Yeah, I agree. And I, I also think uh, what, I, what I hear and, and tie to uh, is uh, all of those, you know, blue zone longevity research looking at being and perceiving yourself as part of the community, yes. part of a, a, a bigger cause or purpose or, you know, a group than your own connection, connecting to a higher purpose or power to those of us that it speaks to. These are not only recipes, you know, when we started this conversation, we were talking about, you know, health span and lifespan. And, and really what, what we are again coming back to is maybe a, another circle in that Venn diagram, which is kind of a happiness span, right? Or like right. a fulfillment span. Oh, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> PM. No, but the, <laughs> but the ability to have the same umbrella covering uh, love of life and joy yes. of life, right? Yes. And, 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 and I think like to me, the, uh, the that, that blue zone comparison is actually something I'm going to talk about. The mythic life is the individual piece, but you're absolutely right. The other piece is, is tying that your own mythic story to the collective mm -hmm. right? and being part of a community. And I think one of the other things that uh, has created a lot of this anxiety and depression that we're seeing is the fact that it's, it's an old saying, but I think it's what's true is like, if you don't believe in something, you'll fall for anything, you know, or you, I think it's if you don't stand up for something, you'll fall for anything, but you have to believe like, we kind of declared God dead. And we thought that was the end of it, we're all going to be scientists. And you know, we're going to go into this other place. But in the absence of the belief 
and the ability to participate in a larger story, humans actually go a little crazy. Yeah. It, it, it just seems to be what happens. We, we have to find something that makes us feel like we're tied to a larger tribe, a larger purpose, and a greater power. Mm-hmm. And so if that greater power becomes a demagogue, right, or a, or a cult leader, then people will submit to that instead of submitting to a, a higher power of love. Yeah. And then they will become part of that tribe and they will start behaving this way. And, mm-hmm. and this is something we can observe in our society directly. So this has been the drawback of a secular world. And, and I would have never predicted this as somebody who is, you know, considers myself to be a scientist, but has also studied a lot of spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I've always struggled how to, how to be in both worlds at the same time. How do I combine my passion for the scientific method and my true belief that it is the greatest system of understanding the world around us that has ever been invented is the scientific method. But I've always wanted to also study spiritual traditions and myths. And, and I always thought like these were like something was wrong with me for being interested in both of these at the same time. But now I realize it's the synthesis of those two things that is the essential is going to be essential for us to survive. If humanity wants to survive, we have to come to a synthesis position between these two things. We can't be just a scientific civilization or just a religious civilization. We have to find a synthesis. And yeah, you know, I wish if I had the answer to that, you know, I, I wish I did. I'd be, you know, screaming it from the mountaintops. But I think that's kind of what we're all trying to figure out right now. Yeah, I think we, there are examples for it, you know, whether if we look uh, through evolutionary terms or through uh, epidemiological, uh, anthropolog- anthropological uh, uh, lens, because we can look at, uh, you know, traditions like the Chinese or Japanese tradition, especially Japanese, which is looking at the, you know, as the single, uh, as a part of a collective. And, and right. you know, we can talk about like mask wearing when you're sick in order not to infect other people or the way that you're viewing yourself as part of a, uh, a cog in a, in a large society that that your actions kind of have a butterfly effect in 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 the end but we can also look at the way that we have designed you know from being animals we've we've been uh we evolved to associate you know things that happen with with cause like cause and effect right and we can understand that if something happened, something else caused it, right? That's why right. That's why we are going... Well, that that's the joke, I think. That's, I don't know if everyone has seen this, but I remember when I was quite young, there was like a cartoon of like two cavemen walking and the lightning hits one of them mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. you know, not the other. And so what is the guy who doesn't get hit by lightning looks up and says, well, it must have been something up there likes me, right? <laughs> and that's... that's that's kind of how you we invented God, you know, uh-huh. is this idea of something up there likes me, didn't like him because it struck him <laughs> dead, but likes me. So now I'm going to go and make an offering to whatever that thing is, uh-huh. right? Because we couldn't explain the natural phenomena. So scientists will use that as like, oh, well, that look how primitive and stupid that thinking is. But what it turns out, actually, and I think it was Carl Jung who said this, is that, you know, is that in all of his work of researching religion and mythology, he said, look, I can't say for sure whether God exists or not, but I can say that the people who believe in God are more psychologically healthy. Yes. I think this is a fascinating idea for people mm-hmm. to realize. So it's almost like it doesn't matter if, if God is real or not, but you actually do better psychologically if you believe in something like that, because it just helps balance your mind. 
And I think I'm not saying people should suddenly jump out and go join a religion and become religious, but I think it's important for us to, to look at this in the context of mental health. And it's something people aren't talking about from what I can see. And I think it's an important point. Would you say it's ex- it's ex- exceedingly important because we are living in a, 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 a kind of in a strange society? Do you right. think it, it, it could it goes hand in hand or it goes it, it uh, supplements lack of uh, a closer knit village-like group that most of us do, do not enjoy? Right. I think I think the key to us actually transitioning into a healthier society is combining these two things, mm-hmm. finding something greater than oneself to serve. I mm-hmm. think that's that's a key. And that doesn't have to be, I mean, churches or synagogues or the mosques have fulfilled this role in many ways because people go, they gather as a community, and then often they go and they go do charitable work, right, together. Yeah. Is part of what they do. So even if you don't belong to one of those those institutions, because if we said they're medieval, right? So we mm-hmm. don't meet with our medieval institution. Maybe we want to do something more modern, but we have to find a way to serve something greater than one's own self. Yeah. Uh, and and that's key. And we need to do it in community of some kind mm-hmm. with other people of like mind, because we are tribal beings coming back to those paleolithic emotions. If we're not in some type, of, we're going to join some type of a tribe. So if mm-hmm. that tribe online you know, and that could be a tribe that say, you know, pick it, pick any issue, right? Pro-gun, anti-gun, right? So I'm a pro-gun guy. I'm going to go online and I'm going to join my pro-gun tribe. And if I'm an anti-gun, I'm going to jo- go online and join that. It doesn't matter. I don't care what tribe it is. You're mm-hmm. going to just fall in with that group. So choose it consciously. Ideally, find people around you that you could physically interact with who share some of those values. And ideally, collectively, go do some good in the world together that is serving somebody other than yourselves, not just for the benefit of your tribal group, but something for other people possibly in need of some kind. And you know what? That's actually going to make you way happier yeah. than just I, trying to, to serve yourself. I agree. I love the, uh, the fact that you said choose it consciously. I think we should do another podcast talking about like conscious uh, decision making, right. living consciously, developing habits, etc. Really, I know I, I, I keep repeating it, but I think you're, a, you're my guru in, in this area and I, oh, and I love to share you with, with the world. Um, <laughs> Elias, because as uh, anyone who has heard uh, can tell, you are a wealth of knowledge, and uh, you should you some you are someone that people should aim their let's call it their attendance in conferences or or talks according to whether you'll be there or not. So obviously we're going to have in the show notes how to find you, etc. But could you share with us where are some of the next uh, events that you're going to be a part of and, and talking at? I'm going to be part of How Do You Health in Austin, mm-hmm. which will be at the beginning of December. Uh, I was there last year. I don't think you were there. You're going to come this year, I believe. It was a, yeah, it was that's a correct. blast. We were at uh, a beautiful uh, something called the Music Hill Ranch in the Lakeway District outside of Austin on this big piece of land. And we were out there playing, doing yoga in the morning. And we we actually filled the pool with ice. We got two pallets of ice and threw it in the pool and all jumped in. Wow. So it was real community. I mean, it was really one of the best feelings of community that I had, because it wasn't like in a cold conference room, you know, hotel somewhere. This was like, we were on the land as a community, talking, sharing, playing. And mm-hmm. it was very fulfilling for that reason. So I'll be there. Uh, and I imagine that event happens every December. So hopefully, even if you miss this year, I'll be back again the next year. 
I'm doing a couple private speaking events in the, uh, I'm doing one for actually near as Eve. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm doing one in, uh, actually it's going to be with, uh, the Radfest group, people unlimited. Uh, mm-hmm. I think you can, I think it is open to some people in the public in Phoenix. I'll be doing that for new year's. And then I'm doing a private event in Vegas in January right now that I have booked, but that's closed. And then I'm actually going to be working on doing some of my own events with some of my other partners uh, and collaborators in the space in 2023. So I'm going to revamp my website, which you said will be in the show notes. But the best way to follow me, uh, I am on Instagram, but I try to stay off Instagram because I think it's bad for my uh, dopamine <laughs> levels. So I go, I modulate my Instagram interaction. I'm a little, the only place I'm the most active is on LinkedIn. Uh-huh. So if you want to find me on LinkedIn, I tend to talk about what I'll be doing and the work that I'm interested in there. Great. And obviously we reshare whatever you, whatever event you're, you're going to be at. We make sure to reshare it because again, we believe you're a wealth of knowledge. Uh, so yeah, Elias, thank you very, very, very much. You are I don't know what else I can say. The world's most interesting person, you know? No, I I wouldn't Uh, go that far, but I appreciate the comment. Thank you. And uh, I thank you for this conversation today. And um, yeah, stay tuned for the next uh, podcast we're going to do on decision-making. All right, perfect. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I hope you uh, got something useful. Yes, sir. Thank you.